Big Pharma, they design the study and they design the study for whatever particular outcome they want. If they don't get that outcome, then they change the endpoints during the study. If they, that doesn't work, then what do they do? They actually fabricate the data. It's truly astonishing. That's what they do. They analyze the data. They publish the data. They usually have ghost writers who publish the data. So the journal, the, the big pharma controls the entire process. They do not supply the raw data to the peer reviewers or the journal. So the big pharma basically manufacture, it could be a story. This could be a, a Disney um, caricature story because most of it is not based on any truth or science. And so that for me is so astonishing. And it doesn't matter if it's JAMA or Lancet or the New England Journal, they're all in there to make money. And so one has to be very, very careful in the way you interpret the data that's published. And for me, this is so disappointing because it's a, it's a perversion of science. It should not be this way. And I think we need to get back. There needs to be transparency. Mm -hmm. I think if you're going to test a drug, it should be done completely independent of the big pharma, is that they have such a vested interest in the outcome, they're going to manipulate the results. So there's no question of doubt it must be done by an independent research organization. The data must be analyzed by independent statisticians and that big pharma should only get access to the data once the study is closed and it's been analyzed. And then the studies should be written by those who actually conducted the study, not by ghost writers for big pharma. It's a complete and utter sham. It's a scam. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. We are in an undisclosed location in the Mid-Atlantic area where I am super excited to bring to you, really, I don't use this, this phrase lightly, a, a living pioneer. And you know, when we look at the word pioneer, we always look at that in a context, in a phrase that is, you know, their best works behind them. Well, I'm fixing to introduce to you Paul Merrick, MD, one of the most published critical care physicians in the world on sepsis. And yet his introduction to integrative medicine is really bringing forth a new career for him. And it's one that I think that really can change medicine. So I'm super excited to bring to you Paul Merrick and we're really gonna just, we're gonna dive into his career and highlight really kind of three aspects of his career, the first being vitamin C and sepsis. So if you've ever heard about Dr. Paul Merrick and vitamin C and sepsis, like me, uh, where I was super excited when I heard it and happened to cross paths with him many years ago, um, you know, this is the man that really started to change, I think, integrative medicine in an evidence-based way. But then COVID hit, 
And then that changed him, but he was on the front there too. And now he's leading again in the world of integrative oncology, integrative cancer. So Paul, it is super excited to meet you here. Thank you. And you, you invited me to speak at the FLCCC in Dallas in the spring, and it was, it was an incredible event. So if you're not a membership of, member of that organization, I encourage you to, because they are doing some great, great things. But I got up there and I said something and I came down, I was talking to my wife as we were headed to the airport and I said, I just called Paul Merrick a teddy bear. <laughs> and she said, yes, but you called, him, you called him a pioneer and he's a teddy bear because he has a big heart. <laughs> so, you know, he's a bulldog. He's a teddy bear. He has the heart of a physician. And that's not saying something lightly. And that's what I meant by a teddy bear. So I wanted to make sure I clarified that. I wasn't talking about you're a big teddy bear, teddy bear for a hug, though you might you might like that from some aspects. Well, thanks. I've been called a lot worse. In fact, I do have a lot of body hair. So I've actually been <laughs> been called a yeti at school. Maybe I'm going to too much personal detail. I was called the yeti. So I have been called a lot worse. I'm not, okay, I'm not going to call you the Yeti, though we have, we have Yeti cups here, but anyways, um, but it's because you have showed, you've showed amazing grit, but I don't know when you started in this journey that you actually just, you thought that you were going to need grit. Yes, that's been an interesting journey, but you know, as you say, when, when you deal with patients, these are real people, you have to have heart, and so that's what's so distressing with medicine these days is it's people have lost the kindness, the caring, the empathy, because these are patients and we all ultimately are one and we're brothers and sisters in the same world. And it is, it is sad that we've lost that empathy, that you know, kindness. When I first sent, sit down with a new patient, I, they're, they're always eager to jump right into the, their medical history. And sometimes I have to cut them off and say, no, I want to connect with your humanity. You're a mother, you're a father, you're a sister, you're a brother, you're an uncle, you're an aunt. Let's focus on who you are, not what name is attached to you, but who you are. And it's really interesting when you, when you do connect with them that way, they're, all, they're taken aback because it's foreign to them. Yeah. You know, we were coming up the elevator when you were talking about your training in South Africa. So I think that's a good place to start is you're obviously not originally from the United States. This is not a Virginian accent that you picked up, but uh, you know, tell the, the listeners kind of where you've come from because where you've come from, I think has a lot to do with laying the ground with who you are and what you've done today and what you're doing in the future. And then touch on what you said, because I think it's impactful as it relates to your learning and then how you sought to teach, because you you were on the front lines of teaching the doctors of today. Yeah, so, you know, I've thought about this, you know, at much length, and I, I think I am who I am because of the training I received. And I think I was fortunate and privileged enough to have trained in South Africa. And it, it was a privilege. And so, the way we were taught medicine was completely different. You know, it was very much patient focused and it's not a cliche. Most of our teaching was at the bedside. And, you know, William Osler said, where's the best place to teach? And he said, 
at the bedside because that's where the patient is. And so, you know, that's where you develop your clinical skills. You talk to patients, you interact with patients, you, you take a history, believe it or not, taking a history is such a fundamental aspect of interacting with a patient. And we know that in terms of making a diagnosis, 70 to 80% of the diagnosis is based on taking a good history. So, you know, we were taught, we were taught medicine at the bedside and we were taught to think, um, you know, we, we were taught to think out of the box. The professors would ask us questions to, you know, extend our thought process, which is very different from the teaching now, which is basically scripted. They, they're protocols, they're taught to pass exams, they're not taught to think. Unfortunately, the biggest problem with many of the medical students, residents, and the young physicians is that, that they haven't been taught the process of critical thinking. And so they can't think. If you ask them a probing question, unless they've been taught it, they can't answer the question. And so I spend most of my time, you know, as a medical student, actually looking at the bedside. We have bedside rounds. We have bedside teaching. The residents would teach us at the bedside. The, the interns would teach us at the bedside. It was really patient-focused. And the reason is, is, is because medicine is focused on patients. And so the current paradigm is patients walk into the ED and before anybody asks them a question, they get a whole battery of tests and CT scans and x-rays. And then after the fact, they ask them, what's the problem? <laughs> and the problem may have been a, you know, a broken foot or a, injured foot and yet they've done a CAT scan on the head or the chest. So it's completely lopsided and upside down. So, you know, I think a lot of my, my clinical skills and the way I am as a clinician really is based on my training as a bedside clinician. And I suppose the other thing is the first day when I was an intern, the chief of the division said, you're here to serve the patient. The patients come first. Remember that. Patients come first. You are responsible for the patient. They are your patients. And so the problem nowadays is nobody owns any patients, is that the responsibility gets tiered off to a, a whole bunch of different people. So ultimately, no one is responsible for the patient. Whereas when I was an intern, it was my patient. Yeah, the responsibility today, and I think this kind of, this blows a, a lot of people away because, you know, almost what is, as you were talking about how you were trained, it was almost like it was a movie of, you know, years ago, it was a, a created false reality, but that's what medicine is. It is about treating the patients. It is about serving the patient. It is about being at the bedside, being in front of the patient. But that's not what it is today, as you so astutely have, have, have shown. But it's funny that you said serve. I, I often tell our patients when they come in, there's several principles that guide me. Hope, heal, teach, and serve. And so we serve patients, but we don't serve a hospital. We don't serve a government regulatory body. We don't serve a medical insurance company. But what I think 
tying in with that critical thinking, I think that was beautiful what you said. We we don't have critical thinkers, but in turn, what we really have is we have group thinkers. They can't think independently, so they're not going to be able to challenge and, and basically back up what they're thinking and their, their process of thinking. But because of that, they, they just become a cog in the wheel of the group thinking, which then serves everything but the patient. And so, and I think in your career and in my career, we've seen this shift. I don't think it's always been that way. And, um, and we'll talk about this in the second segment, but what you're doing with the FLCCC is trying to help that process and try to help restore, I think, one of those most intimate of relationships. I don't think there's any relationship more intimate in terms of a professional relationship between a patient and a doctor. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree that the patient-physician relationship is sacred and they, they trust you. They put the, their life in your hands. They, they respect you. And so you owe them. Absolutely. You know, that it's a, it's, you have to take it really seriously. And your, your primary obligation is to the patient. As you said, it's not to the healthcare system. It's not to the hospital. It's not to the administrator. Your responsibility is the patient. And you need to treat the patient as if the patient was a member of your family, what you would want them to receive. That, that's the way we were trained. And it seems that's the way it should be. It should be focused on the patient, the whole patient, not just whether they have heart failure, but the whole totality of the patient. You know, when I think back regarding particular patients, I'm not thinking of a, a name or label of disease. I see their face. I can, I can see their experience. Now I know what disease they had as I think through it. And I can see their interactions with their family and their friends. It's people. That's what we're after is people. And I think why medicine has lost its way is because it's forgotten its purpose that it is for people. Yeah. You make a connection with a patient. And so, you know, one of the things which was striking is most of the patients that I looked after were really impoverished people. These are people who had minimal wealth. But they were so gratified and so grateful for the care they would that we received. They would bring us little gifts, um, you know, a bag of potatoes, <laughs> um, some carrots, <laughs> um, a candy bar, just to show their gratitude because that they felt that you had connected with them and you'd help them. I can't recall the last time in the U.S. a patient actually showed that kind of gratitude because it's it's such a completely different patient-physician relationship. In hospitals these days, patients are clients. They're customers. Yeah. Yeah. They're treated as, as a customer and not as a patient. And that, that personal relationship with the patient is lost. And I think that's that's the most valuable thing there is, is to connect to a patient. And then, because then once it's your patient, you're responsible for that patient, for everything to do with that patient. And it, it changes your complete perspective. Yeah. And, you know, as we were told, the patient comes first, everything else is secondary. It's, you know, you look, it's like you take the patient out of the doctor-patient relationship and you've in essence, you've taken the soul out of that relationship. 
in many ways. It's the it's the purpose, and we, and we can talk forever about this because it's it's what's wrong with medicine. I think medicine can be restored. I don't. We were talking before over lunch. I don't know if it can be restored to what we thought, but if if there was a a return to the patient-doctor relationship at the core of medicine. I think it's possible, but we were talking at lunch that the medicine that we we have known, I've even known in my career, that it may not be salvageable. Yeah, yeah I think the system is broken. And, you know, obviously I'm hopeful because one has to be hopeful. Right. Um, and, and I think there are things that we can do but I think we have to acknowledge the current system is broken and it needs to be fixed. So we need to be positive and do the things we can do that we can do. And, you know, we're going to be talking about vitamin C. And so the reason actually I got this idea was I was at the bedside of a patient who was dying. And so I did what I would imagine any physician would do, would say, you know what, this is my patient. My patient is dying. What can I do to save this patient's life? Yeah. I mean, so that that was my only motivation. It was not, wow, I'm going to save the world or, wow, this is some new fancy thing. It was, you know what? I have a really sick patient. She's in my hands. I'm responsible for this patient. You know, what can I do to save this patient's life? And that's 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 how this came about because that's the way I was trained. You know, I can guarantee you that almost any other clinician would have done the, the usual, you know, presses and antibiotics and said, well, I've done everything. Well, there's never ever done everything. There's always something more you can do and you, you've got to think out of the box. And so that's how this whole thing happened. It wasn't, you know, I, I, I was just thinking, you know, what, what can I do to, to, to help this poor woman? And I had read previously you know, Dr. Fowler's work on vitamin C. And I thought, you know what, what, I, what do I have to lose? So this was a patient that was in the ICU? Yeah, so and, this was yeah. a woman in her early 50s who had biliary sepsis and septic shock. Mm -hmm. She was in renal failure, respiratory failure, cardiac failure. She was dying. Yeah. You know, as a clinician, you know when a patient is dying. And she had an acute potentially reversible disease. And obviously we did the standard things, which were, you know, appropriate fluids, antibiotics, presses. She was on a ventilator, she was getting dialysis, but she, her path was towards dying. And then I thought, well, what can I do? Is so, there so something the else I can do to try and change the trajectory of this disease? The conventional protocols what you were taught to do, which can help people, definitely, okay? But what you were taught to do, she was slipping away. And so you used your critical mind to say, I, I've read some papers, a paper about vitamin C. And so how you, how you frame that in terms of just saying, I need to help this patient, and then you left for the evening and then came back for rounds. Could, could you summarize that? Because I think that right there is a perfect microcosm of what medicine is not and what it should be. So, you know, she was dying and I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a try. So I quickly did some reading. 
to try and figure out the right dose. I called the pharmacist and said, hey, you know, I'd like to give this lady IV vitamin C. Fortunately, they had IV vitamin C in the oh, pharmacy, wow. <laughs> which they um, use for, for parental nutrition. So it was available. At that time, they didn't question me. They <laughs> Things have changed since then. You know, they, they did respect me. They respected my my judgment and my wisdom and said, I'd like to try this on this patient. And we got her the vitamin C. And then I thought, you know what? I, I've always believed that corticosteroids have a role in sepsis. And I thought, you know what? These two seem to theoretically be, be synergistic or additive. I'm going to add the steroids to the vitamin C. So we ordered it for the patient. And, you know, I had no expectations. I thought, you know what? It's something I must do. I was completely convinced the next morning when I would arrive that she would have passed away. And uh, the astonishment, I was astonished the next day, astonished in that she was off all of her blood pressures. She was about to be weaned to be extubated. Her renal kidney function had improved and the dialysis had stopped. So within about four hours of me arriving, we extubated this woman. And she walked out of the ICU. When I say walked out, she walked out on her own steam four days later. And that doesn't typically happen. And so I was stunned and the nurses were stunned because that was not what we normally see. So was this, you had interns and fellows at that time? Yes. So I would just love to be able to try to jump into what was that conversation like on that round, that those rounds that morning with all those residents and fellows around, what, what was that conversation yeah. like? So it was, wow, what just happened? There's some, so, you know, miracles, you know, I don't believe in miracles. I mean, things happen for a reason, but we said, you know, something miraculous happened. We did something to this patient to turn her disease around. We said, you know what? It, it was probably the IV vitamin C that we gave her. And so, you know, we, we didn't want to put all our bags in the same, you know, all our eggs in the same basket. We thought, well, you know what? You know, if this works, it will work again. So that's the one nice thing about science. That's why I, I really like science, because science is based on observation and reproducibility. So if you make an observation in um, Norfolk, Virginia, you can make an observation in Miami or in in Houston, Texas, or in Tokyo, because if it's a valid observation, it's reproducible. You mean science is not a double-blinded, randomized, but placebo-controlled trial? No, <laughs> no, it's reproducibility of observations. So we thought, you know what, this is really interesting. Um, it seems that there's a good, you know, there's there's a good scientific premise for it to work. It, it wasn't like this was a random thing. There's really good scientific data to support the use of vitamin C in critically ill people. Right. As we'll talk about, there's very good data using vitamin C in sick people. Burn patients. There's, you know, any acutely stressed patient will benefit from vitamin C. And in terms of septic shock, septic shock is probably the most intense stressor you can expose a human being to. I think I found that the first paper I think that you were authored on or that you that you were lead author on and if I'm incorrect so forgive me but was in 2002 
um, the central nervous system, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and sepsis. <laughs> yeah, so I've had an interest in sepsis, obviously, and the HPA axis. Yeah. So you can obviously see why you use corticosteroids. Exactly. exactly. Um, it's, and so, you know, what people don't recognize is that generally cortisol is a stress hormone. So when the body is stressed, it makes cortisol. What people don't recognize is that all mammals on this planet, when they're stressed, make vitamin C. Mm -hmm. Vitamin C is a stress hormone. So your dog, your cat, your horse, your goat, when, when they're stressed, they make vitamin C. I don't have any goats. Um, <laughs> I'm just and kidding. you don't look like a goat. But if, <laughs> okay. you were a, if you were a goat and you know what, you had a really bad argument with your wife, you know, Mrs. Goat, <laughs> you, your vitamin C level would go up and your cortisol level would go up. And I'd go outside and because you'd, you'd kick outside. me out. <laughs> So the interesting thing is that animals, two species on this planet can't make vitamin C. They have uh, fatal genetic mutations in the enzyme which makes vitamin C. And the, these are guinea pigs, guinea pigs of all things, and human beings. So human beings, when they stress, don't make vitamin C. Right. Whereas if you were a dog or a cat or a billy goat and you had the same stressor, you would make vitamin C. So that's why possibly dogs and cats and goats, when they get septic, don't get so sick. And so what's really interesting is if you look at animals that are vitamin C producers versus non-producers, those that are non-producers, they have a much higher cortisol response because they have to compensate for the ability to the de deficiency of making vitamin C. So if you think of vitamin C as a stress hormone, then it makes much more sense so that when the human body is stressed, and so it doesn't really matter what the stressor is, you know, this could be surgery. Right. Just think about that. Oh. You know, this could be a traumatic injury. I've talked about, I have a podcast where I talk about surgery as it relates to cancer because, you know, I'm always worried about the dissemination of circulating tumor cells and the impact on metastasis from surgery. And, and because the, the process of surgery suppresses the immune system postoperatively, but vitamin C has been shown to be helpful pre and postoperatively to do just that. So it's the stress of the surgery that is what you're saying. It, it is suppressing that drive. And there are ways by simply just giving vitamin C to restore that. Such simple steps, but it's not done. Yeah, so that's why, you know, it's in life it's often the simple things in life that are the, have the most profound impact this is not rocket science this is vitamin c yeah. you know which is a cheap safe uh compound which can be given anywhere anywhere in the world and very um, very well tolerated by what you've shown in in that particular instance is very the, the most sick of the sick sickest renal failure you know, I, I get a lot of time people say, well, <clears throat> you know, vitamin C causes renal failure. Um, you know, and it's like, so well, can I stop you there? Please do. Because I, I get this all the time. We can't get vitamin C because the patient's got liver failure or kidney failure. I want to shoot myself <laughs> because it is just so absurd 
It's not evidence-based. It's so absurd. What can vitamin C do? If you take massive doses of vitamin C over a prolonged period of time, it can cause kidney stones. Okay, but in fact, if you give vitamin C to a patient who's septic and in renal failure, it will improve kidney function. Exactly. So this idea that you can't give vitamin C to a... Because I get this all the time, nonstop. Oh, we can't give it because it's toxic to the kidney. Uh, the problem is the doctor's toxic. Oh, that's No, you're right. But that's the narrative, right? That's the narrative that nobody dives underneath critically trying to analyze that. It's something they've been taught from their resident or from their fellow when they were an intern. They didn't question it. They weren't taught to think about it. And they just propagated it you know, generation after generation after generation be, until it's become de facto fact. Yeah. So, you know, I can recall having patients who are in septic shock from an obstructive uropathy, mm -hmm. which means they have kidney stones that have obstructed the kidney system and they're profoundly septic. We've given them vitamin C because we're not interested in the patients dying of sepsis. You know, we're not interested in the kidney stone. We can deal with the kidney stone afterwards. So in patients, even patients with kidney stones who septic, it's perfectly safe. I've given vitamin C to patients on dialysis. And I'll never forget the one time I gave a phone call to a nephrologist. And I said, you know, this, this patient had Hodgkin's lymphoma. So if you're watching Eric, uh, love you brother. Um, it's a patient of mine, he came in with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Immediately, he came, he, what he told me is he said, he said, doc, he said, I appreciate that you think I need treatment now, but I've got a birthday upcoming, a concert to go to in Las Vegas with my buddies. And I just, I have to do that. So two weeks I'll be able to come back. And so I can't even examine him. He's so sweaty because all the sweats he's getting with the Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I said, well, Eric, I, I don't normally speak exactly like this, but you won't be around. So within 24 hours, he was 24, 40 hours. He was in the ICU intubated um, in renal failure because he was there when we, when we got his labs back. And um, so then he came out, got discharged. He was in there for like three, four weeks. Um, it came back to the clinic. We, we started on low dose metronomic chemo and vitamin C. And I'll never forget when I reached out to the nephrologist said, it's, it's time to start weaning him off the dialysis. And it was just quiet. And I said, hello, did, did we drop the phone? Cause I was on my cell phone. So no, I don't normally taper people off of dialysis. Mm -hmm. well, I said, well, I sure don't know how I was hoping you did. <laughs> so he's been off of dialysis now for like, I think two years, renal functions, you know, his creatinine's borderline, you know, 55, 65, but he's living. He's living life and he's cancer-free, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it can be given to patients in the worst situation, but the narrative is that it can't be. Why, why, do, you, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's ignorance. I don't know what else to say. I think it's not understanding it's basically, you have to understand medicine, you have to understand physiology, you have to understand pharmacology. I think many doctors have difficulty in integrating all of these disciplines to understand what's going on. And so, um, I mean, if you look at the literature, it's perfectly safe. Um, uh, I, I can think of almost no contraindications to the use of vitamin C, actually. 
if you're dying, if you're dying of sepsis, if you've had severe injury, what is there to lose? I can't think of even G6PD deficiency, which is listed as a contraindication. In fact, the treatment of choice is probably vitamin C as an antioxidant. And I've only seen that three times in my, my clinical career. Yeah. So the only time I would never give vitamin C to a patient is unfortunately if the patient had passed away then I think it's probably not going to be very effective. A very, a very, very small subset of people. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, I, I think it's a it's safe. It's, it's readily accessible. It's cheap. So the only, the, the big problem with vitamin C is that you can't patent it. Yeah. So because you can't get a patent on vitamin C, nobody's interested in it because you can't make money. And that's what it's all about. It's the same of sunshine. Sunshine has enormous health and health promoting properties. Nobody talks about it because you can't get a patent on sunshine. If a big, big pharma could get a patent on sunshine, well, they, they would be selling it. Yeah. So th that's the big problem is that with all these repurposed drugs is that you can't get a patent. If there's no patent, there's no money. If there's no money, there's no incentive. The fact that you're saving a patient's life should be the incentive. But unfortunately, that's not what the healthcare system, what drives the healthcare system. That used to be what it was. Hippocrates said, physician, heal thyself. I think that needs to be kind of updated to physician, teach patients to heal thyself. But because it's about the patient. And I think that quote from Hippocrates or attributed to him is more focused on physicians, but our job is to heal patients. And I, I often tell Paul, you know, patients, look, the word physician in Hebrew is a word rofe. It literally means healer. And so when I speak, and I didn't do this at the FLCCC because I knew that the, those were my people. I was in the right crowd because I knew we were a lot alike in thought and mind. But if I'm in a crowd that I don't really know where they are and I'm speaking, I often start off with, how many healers do I have in the audience? And, and then you see doctors. <laughs> they just feel very uncomfortable. But that's what we are. We are healers that give hope, that serve people. And that's what you've done throughout your career. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You mentioned, um, as I get this out of sleep mode, you mentioned... Um, you know, vitamin C as a, as a vitamin, you actually had another article, you've published many as it relates to vitamin C, but 2016, vitamin S and vitamin C for the treatment of severe sepsis and septic shock. And then you followed that up with, uh, of course, the one that I talked about for years before we finally met, which was the, the, the article that you published in the journal Chest in 2017. And, and that one, I encourage you all to please check these articles out because they are groundbreaking. They, they emulate critical care thinking and innovative thinking and elevation of medicine that's desperately needed. But um, this article from 2017 is entitled Hydrocortisone, Vitamin C, and Thiamine for the Treatment of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock, a Retrospect retrospective before and after study. And I guess, was that the follow-up study from that, that particular case where you started yeah. to build that out? So that, that, that we did a series, you know, once you make an observation, you have an ob ob obligation and you save a patient's life. You can't just stop then. You have an obligation to take it further. And so we took it further. And in fact, 
Our nurses, I was actually going to do a randomized controlled trial, but our nurses actually objected because they thought it was unethical, unethical to withhold an effective treatment for, 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 a, for a particular disease which was fatal. God bless nurses. Because the nurses are the ones at the bedside. They could see the patients getting better. They were the ones weaning the blood pressure medication. They were the ones getting the patient off the ventilator. And they could see the dramatic effect that the vitamin C was happening. And they said to me, how can you give a patient placebo when you know that you have an effective therapy? There, there, there wasn't true equipoise. So, you know, when you have equipoise, then, you know, you know, you're not sure if one is better than the other. But we knew, <laughs> you know, you'd have to be deaf, blind and dumb to see this wasn't working. And the nurses were the ones that were validating what was happening. And they said, you can't do that. It would just be unethical to give a dying patient placebo when they could get vitamin C. So we just did a prospective case series. And then we compared the data retrospectively to matched patients prior to us doing the vitamin C. And that, that was, the, that was the, the study. And, you know, you don't need to do randomized, controlled, double-blind studies to, to make reasonable observations. Well, the nurses, I have never heard that aspect of that, that story. Um, and it's one that's documented on the Internet. So, and that's where I first saw you talk about that particular patient and that, that's, that, that story. And, it, and it, it raised the hairs on my back when I heard it because... It, I, I can't imagine what that would have been like to have been there, but it was so impactful that the nurses said, no, 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 this is now de facto, this is required care. That shows you how dramatic that impact was. And you know how we doctors and nurses work together. It's a, it's a team, but sometimes it's a love-hate team, right? We work together, but we challenge each other. And that's great. But there they were actually saying, no, Dr. Paul Merrick, this is too impactful for the, our patients. You must proceed with all. Because I think while physicians are different from nurses, nurses, they take their responsibility really seriously and they, they consider their patient and they're there for the best interests of their patients. And so I think nurses are the ones that actually uh, stand up for the rights of patients and they, they, they strongly believed that the vitamin C was turning these patients around and that it was unethical not to give it to them. So the nurses at Brio Medical, my nurses are, I think they're exceptional. And I tell them, you are my hands, you're my feet, you're my mouth, you're my ears. You guys are excellent. I love you. So thank you for what you do. I know the patients love you, but you are just wonderful, wonderful nurses at Brio Medical. So just want to always like to shout out my team there because they, yeah, so, they are so instrumental. You know, what you say is really important. It is teamwork. Oh, yeah. Um, so, all, you know, although what I did, you know, people said, you know, well, that was really cool. But really, it was the, the pharmacy that helped, you know, acquire the vitamin C and uh, administer the vitamin C. It's the nurses who provided the bedside care. It's the respiratory therapists. It's teamwork. And th that, you know, the the... It's, 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 it's like a, a soccer game. Yeah. You, you, can't, you don't have one person who wins. It's a team working together. And I think 
we were fortunate enough at that time, before we had all these other extraneous forces, that we could work together as a team for the best interests of the patient. Because of course, I'm sure accolades came from the hospital, accolades came from your colleagues, accolades came from the industry and the world at large, right? Isn't that what followed? So the, the, course, the course was somewhat interesting. At the beginning, the hospital actually was quite supportive of me and were quite proud of what I did um, until it became more generally known. And then the, um, the name calling started. I was considered a fraud, a snake oil doctor. My data was not valid. Uh, the, the, the medical scientific community turned on me um, because they thought it was impossible. My results were just not feasible. And so some of the most powerful people in the sepsis community called me a snake oil doctor and that um, unless I did a double blind randomized large placebo controlled study my data was useless. How did they square that though with patients that were alive that were on death's door? How, did they even try to square that or did that even come up in the conversation? Yeah, so, yeah that never came up in the conversation. They just assumed that I cheated, that um, I made up the data. Uh, it was all despite obviously the nurses who were my greatest witnesses to what had happened, they considered me a fraud. And then obviously, as you know, I was accused of scientific misconduct. More recently, a complaint was lodged by an Australian uh, who went on a Twitter tirade and then complained to the hospital and complained to the journal that my data was just flawed. He, he said, after reading the paper for five minutes, it was absolutely clear to him that the data was fabricated and that um, I committed severe scientific fraud. Five minutes. Yes. Wow, wow. That's, that's quite the mind to, to really read five minutes of an article, be able to, to clear out fraud from fact. Wow. And so people took it as the truth, you know. Finally, he's been caught out. And so I went through this, oh, year-long process uh, in which my data was sifted through with a, with a tooth comb. Um, how basically, long, how long did it take to reach that point? I mean, was it was it six months, twelve months before you started to really notice a turn? In I thought this was a good thing, and now you came under attack. Yeah. So I think within a few weeks, actually, of the paper being published, the negative social media posts started appearing that what I was seeing was completely fabricated, it was false, it was, I was a snake oil doctor, uh, I should, you know, I, I had no business saying what I was doing. Um, it was very swift. When you were writing up this article, did that thought ever cross your mind? Not in the least. I mean, I thought I had a responsibility to report what we had found, and it was based on such solid scientific data. If there was not a good scientific premise for this, I could understand. But if you understand the literature, if you understand the fact that septic patients are profoundly vitamin C deficient, profoundly vitamin C deficient, and we know that the myriad of benefits of vitamin C, it's not rocket science to put two and two together. 
that giving vitamin C to people who are profoundly vitamin C deficient, in fact, the levels that patients achieve are similar to those of patients with scurvy. So this is an acute onset of scurvy. No one would say you would, would, would not want to treat a patient with scurvy. So it just didn't make sense to me that there was biological plausibility. There was enormous scientific underpinning. We had this observational data which seemed very strong. So I, I thought people would embrace this. I had no idea what was coming down the pike. You know, you were talking about an article <clears throat> at lunch to show that not only were you on the tip of the spear with the science then, you're on the tip of the spear with vitamin C even today. Highlight that article that you were talking about, because I think that ties perfectly in this conversation. Yes, yeah, so a paper was published in Nutrients maybe two weeks ago that looked at patients with severe COVID-19. So COVID severe COVID-19 is a form of severe inflammation. So you would anticipate these patients would have low vitamin C levels. So what did they do in the study? They measured the serum vitamin C levels, but they actually took it a step further. They measured the intracellular levels of vitamin C because vitamin C actually acts in the cell mm -hmm. via multiple mechanisms. So obviously if the level is low in the cell, then you have a problem. And so what did they show? Yes, indeed. I think like 35 to 40% of patients had severely depressed levels of serum vitamin C and about 50% had decreased levels of intracellular vitamin C. And with time, the deficiency actually got worse. So it does validate this concept that severely ill patients, particularly with inflammation, have low levels of vitamin C, both in the serum and within the cell. So it is, it is good validation that, you know, uh, uh, what, what we suspected, what we knew in 2016, you know, has been validated in 2022, 2023. It validated what you did. It validated your paper, but it's validating, it's the mechanisms behind it. And what I think you so beautifully displayed there is that solid, solid medical Science, when you look at medicine, medicine's a blend of science and art. And what you showed there was, I think, a very critical eye to the science, but the ability to critically think and then add that art to it. Because I don't know too many docs that would have made that leap that says, you know what, vitamin C, I've read some articles, let's apply it, let's help this patient that has no help at this point. Um, so I, I wanted to highlight that because that, I believe, is a blend that's been lost. The beginning of medicine, as we know, going back to Hippocrates, etc., it was all art. There wasn't a lot of science. Then the last 120, 150 years ago, science has really become the forefront of medicine. And now we've lost the art. And, and we really need to return to that proper balance because I think that's where we get the innovation from. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, is that you need both science and you need the art. And you need to blend the two together because no patient, no two patients are the same. Mm. You know, that every single patient is different, you know, in so many different aspects. So that's why it's a, it's a blend of intuition, understanding, clinical sense, clinical art, as well as the science. You have to have both. Either, either on their own just doesn't cut it. 
you have to understand the science and that you need to have to understand how to apply the science in an artistic way. So let's let's go ahead and open this can of worms. Um, you know, many look at the journals out there, the medical journals out there, and they think it's altruistic. It, it's in proper perspective, proper purpose. It's founded in science. And that what we have in the publication arena of medicine is trustable, is val validated, and it's reproducible. What do you think about that statement? Yes, so I used to believe that New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA and Lancet actually came from heaven, that the data like was, manna. It was given to us. It was, it, was, it was like the Ten Commandments. It was just the truth. Mm. I believed it was the truth, the ultimate truth, and that's what most doctors believe. I've come to, to understand that that was completely and utterly false that almost all studies published by Big Pharma, almost all studies published by Big Pharma or Big Pharma sponsor the studies or has a hand is scientific misconduct. And the fact that it's published in New England Journal of Medicine makes no difference because the New England Journal of Medicine profits enormously from the publication of these fraudulent papers. And so for me, this was probably the most distressing aspect of the COVID, post-COVID era is I used to believe in the science that we read and I've now come to understand you have to be very careful in how you interpret the data. Because for many reasons, Big Pharma, they design the study and they design the study for whatever particular outcome they want. If they don't get that outcome, then they change the endpoints during the study. If they, that doesn't work, then what do they do? They actually fabricate the data. It's truly astonishing. That's what they do. They analyze the data. They publish the data. They usually have ghost writers who publish the data. So the journal, the, the big pharma controls the entire process. They do not supply the raw data to the peer reviewers or the journal. So the big pharma basically manufacture, it could be a story. This could be a, a Disney um, caricature story because most of it is not based on any truth or science. And so that for me is so astonishing. And it doesn't matter if it's JAMA or Lancet or the New England Journal, they're all in there to make money. And so one has to be very, very careful in the way you interpret the data that's published. And for me, this is so disappointing because it's a, it's a perversion of science. It should not be this way. And I think we need to get back. There needs to be transparency. Mm -hmm. I think if you're gonna test a drug, it should be done completely independent of the big pharma, is that they have such a vested interest in the outcome, they're gonna manipulate the results. So there's no question of doubt it must be done by an independent research organization. The data must be analyzed by independent statisticians and that big pharma should only get access to the data once the study is closed and it's been analyzed. And then the studies should be written by those who actually conducted the study, not by ghost writers for big pharma. It's a complete 
an utter sham. It's a scam and it's a disgrace and an embarrassment. And I'm embarrassed to, to, to admit that I used to believe what I read in the literature. Well, and, and this, this right here will back up what you said. This was from 2012. Now, it's from a journal out of Australia. But here's the quote. It is estimated that there are 1.29 papers published in peer-reviewed medical literature every minute. Even if, even if a doctor were able to keep up with this volume of reading, it is, it is said that much of what is published is flawed. Richard Smith, former editor of the British Medical Journal, is quoted as saying that only 5% of published papers reached minimum standards of scientific soundness and clinical relevance. And in most journals, the figure was less than 1%. Yeah. So there's a statement from 2012 that they're quoting a past you know, editor, chief editor of the British Medical Journal, no throwaway journal. It is considered one of the premier medical journals in the world as saying basically less than 1% of the published literature has any clinical relevance at all. Yeah, isn't that sad? It's heartbreaking. Yes, it's just, as a scientist, as a clinician, it's disturbing that the, that's why I said, I, I consider these journals to be the, the pinnacles, these, the, the, the absolute pinnacle of truth because that's what you think they are, and that they could be so badly corrupted is so disturbing. Which I think is what's so valuable, what you're doing, and we'll talk about the FLCCC tomorrow, and the other areas that you're working in in integrative oncology, is because you're not just idly standing by. You're, and it says a lot about who you are as a person, your heart, that you're not gonna stand for it, you're gonna work with others, you're gonna, you're gonna basically corral other physicians to really try to affect a change to help patients. Kind of going back to your original training, it's about the bedside because it's about the patient. And that's what you're trying to get medicine uh, back to. We could talk about vitamin C and sepsis for, for I think, days. Uh, but I wanted to highlight two other aspects of vitamin C because I don't want vitamin C to be seen as a one-trick pony. And, and people look at it that way, and we can talk all, all day and night about pharmacokinetics, about vitamin C and why it doesn't get dosed properly. But I, I'd love to hear your take on this thing called COVID and vitamin C. Of course, you've already touched on it a little bit, but, you know, and we'll talk about COVID in the FLCCC tomorrow, but, you know, that was really your next journey in this, this three-pronged leg process. But I'd love to hear your take on vitamin C and COVID because just as it relates to sepsis, so many people look and say, well, vitamin C doesn't work for COVID. Yeah, so what you say is true. I think you have to look at each disease as separate. They are different. You know, COVID is a very interesting, it's a very complicated, it's a very challenging disease. It's different to sepsis, although there is an overlap. And so what you say about COVID is true. While vitamin C is really important, it's only part of a multi-pronged approach to the treatment of the patient. It's right. really important. And so one can't hang one's hat on one single therapy and think it's going to work. And you can go back to sepsis. You know, if a patient is septic and you don't give antibiotics, it doesn't matter how much vitamin C you give. Well, you use hydrocortisone and vitamin C. Yeah. So it's part of a 
of a, you know, a multi-pronged treatment approach based on the best available science. And so the same applied to COVID. So in fact, we came up with the Math Plus protocol for the hospitalized patient with COVID. We were the first people to actually come up with a protocol. And the math stands for M is methylprednisolone, A, ascorbic acid, mm -hmm. T, thiamine, and H, heparin. And so... When, it, when was that? This was in April of 2020, when we were told that there was no treatment for COVID, the treatment was symptomatic, and that there was no specific treatment. And we were actually chastised and severely reprimanded for prescribing corticosteroids for a viral illness. What was the mortality rate when you would go into work? I, you told this story at the FLCCC and it, it, it really hit me to the core. You were talking about the mortality rate and how you started instituting this innovative side of yourself that brought that vitamin C to sepsis to COVID because you were trying to help these patients. You were at the bedside trying to help patients. So tell that that story because that really, that cut to my heart. Yeah, so you know, what's important is that as a clinician, you're at the bedside. You know what works and what doesn't work because you, you are at the bedside. You're not sitting in some distant office. So we knew that this was working. And so although we've been accused of scientific misconduct again, what we showed, and this has been shown independently, is that the we, we reduced the mortality by 50%. So that we actually published a paper looking at the overall hospital mortality for patients with COVID, it's around 20%. Our mortality, so we actually, the paper we published was 8.7%, wow. but we had to correct that to 10% because obviously that was at one specific point in time with time. So when I say 20% mortality, that was the 28-day mortality. The 28-day the, the, the mortality was 8.7%, and we were accused of scientific misconduct by the chief medical officer of the hospital, who didn't like it. But in retrospect, the actual follow-up mortality was 10%. So whether you use 8.7% or 10%, it's kind of irrelevant because what we showed is that we reduced the mortality by half. 50%. By half. Yeah. That, 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 that is not insignificant. That is crazy impactful to lives. I mean, how many, how many, how many patients were you seeing come in? Yeah, to... so actually what was interesting is my colleagues thought I had lost it because they were, they were influenced by the hospital and the hospital protocols because clearly the hospital had a protocol which included remdesivir mm. and it included remdesivir and it included remdesivir. <laughs> and obviously my, my approach was different. It included so, kidney destruction. So I, as the chief of the critical care, I had access to the data. So I could show that the mortality when I was on was half of that of my colleagues, half. So we had double verification that this was working, but the hospital was more interested in following the narrative yeah. than in treating patients. So, and this ultimately is what led to me being forced to quit. So how many beds did you have? So it was an 18-bed ICU, 
and almost at that point, all, all 18 beds were occupied by COVID patients. So you're talking at least nine. So when, when, when I'm looking at per the number, shift, yeah. so I actually calculated the number of excess deaths. So in excess of 300 patients during this period died because they were denied the Math Plus protocol. Wow. Um, so Which is very disturbing. And so um, obviously I was not going to keep quiet about it, but the hospital obviously was not pleased that I was following a protocol which went against the standard narrative. And so they try to accuse us when, because we published our data, it was only part, we, we published a paper on Math Plus. The hospital mortality in the paper was a very small component, but they, com they, they complained to the journal we com committed scientific mis misconduct. And based on this, the journal withdrew the paper. So it came down to the same issue, though, just as when you had that patient with sepsis and those patients with sepsis. How, I guess it, it didn't come to their mind to even try to square with those results of real lives saved. I mean, did that discussion ever occur? No, no. I was... Nobody in the hospital ever actually had a discussion with me to understand the scientific rationale for the protocol or for what we were doing. They never sat down to discuss it. They never sat down to discuss the data. As far as they concerned, I was an outcast. I was an outlier. I wasn't following the federal mandates or on how to treat COVID. So your, your, your colleagues didn't come to your assistance and rally to no. your side? No. No. And, 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 but that is very similar to some of the other early leaders in the pandemic where they were cast aside, where their colleagues did turn their back on them. I must, I must admit, I was so numb by it all. I didn't know what to do. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, but I wasn't on the front lines like you were. And I didn't hear that story that you just told until the spring of this year. Yeah, I, I was the Ignac Semmelweis of the COVID pandemic. So Ignac Semmelweis was the person who discovered that washing hands prevented the transmission of infection. And it was such an outlandish and preposterous concept. He lost his job and was put in a mental asylum. And so basically, if you question the status quo, they will label you as unstable, um, psychiatrically disturbed. Um, they will try and destroy your career. You basically said the world's round and they said, no, it's flat. And because of that, we're going to marginalize you. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really interesting when you look back through science and medicine, it does seem to have a repetitive cycle of doing that. Now, it's good that science is slow to pivot. Okay, we need to analyze things, but it seems to have this repetitive pattern of people that are seeing the truth and preaching the truth and standing up for the truth. Instead of saying, that's interesting, let's talk about this, let's debate it, let's discourse it. They said, no, 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 this is a system, destroy you. Yeah, so what you say is so important. And the biggest problem with the COVID era was the lack of 
lack of discussion, lack of scientific exchange was the censorship because science is based on exchange of information Absolutely. and it's self growing, it's self correcting, it's self developing and but it only happens through dialogue, open dialogue, open conversation, exchange of ideas. That's the that's the the essence of science. That's why we publish data so we can exchange information, we can contemplate the data, we can think about the data. But in this instance, if the data were, went against the narrative or the established standard, then that was outlawed and it, it, we weren't allowed to speak about it. And we can see the extent of the, <laughs> of, of the censorship, you know, in the, some of the more recent legal cases, mm -hmm. Biden versus Missouri, in which the federal government were basically determining what could and couldn't be said. So let's carry it to a whole other level, because that's where we're eventually going with the publish of your new book, vitamin C and cancer, because, you know, there's sepsis, which you're, you're exactly right. There may be cross connectivity, but they are each in and of themselves different. Sepsis, COVID, cancer. So vitamin C and cancer, I'd love to hear your thoughts on yeah, that. So obviously, you know, as I said, each disease is different. It's pretty obvious the way your approach would be different. So the use of vitamin C in cancer is very different to that in sepsis or any stress. So in fact, vitamin C in low dose is an antioxidant. Mm -hmm. And that's why the levels in patients who septic, the levels are low because of the consumption because of all the production of oxygen radicals that are being, you know, neutralized by vitamin C, so it's an antioxidant. Paradoxically, in, in cancer, it's high doses are used, and high doses are paradoxically pro-oxidant, and it's used together with chemo and radiation therapy to actually promote the death of the, the, the cancer cell, because it is pro-oxidant. Okay. So you're blowing people's minds, yes. Dr. Merrick. You're blowing people's minds. They're going, wait a second. My radiologist said I can't use high dose IV vitamin C with my radiation. And what I what I tell them, and what you just so artfully said, is IV vitamin C high dose is a pro-oxidant. In a low dose oral form, it's an antioxidant. It's the hermetic principle there. Dose is equating to effect. You cannot achieve a anti-cancer mechanism of action with oral vitamin C. You cannot achieve a plasma ascorbic acid level that approaches even an, a, a decimal of the therapeutic value required to elicit a direct cytotoxic effect of vitamin C or the metabolomic effects beyond that. So, and I think that's your, your artful, uh, I think relay of that is important in that they're different processes because sepsis and vitamin C, the dosing can be much lower. And you showed that and you combined it with other things. But in cancer, the vitamin C requires a much higher dose, a more frequent duration of dose. But again, the same process, it needs to be a part of a process of treatments. Yeah. So it's never given in isolation. It should not be. And so, which is really important. It's part of a multimodality treatment protocol. So it's all, it goes back to understanding the science. That's why the science is so important. You can't practice 
you can't practice medicine without understanding the science. But at the same time, you have to understand the art of when to treat a patient and when not to treat and how to treat a patient. So it's going back to the synergy between science and art. They in they immutably uh, intermingled with one another. Well, we'll make sure we get these articles of Dr. Paul Merrick and, and get them published in in the notes of the podcast. And, and you know, we can talk about, I'd love to touch on this with you a little bit because I think it ties in as it relates to the sepsis and probably is another Galileo event, but a little bit more recent, and that's Linus Pauling. Um, in 1976 and 78, he published two papers. Now, they only used 10 grams, so it was close to your dose, which was 12, 12.5, right? 12.5 grams, which yeah. is 6.25, okay. And so in the first, they found a 4.2% increase in survival, and then the second, they found a 5,400% uh, 5, increase in one year survival. And it was really interesting he said something here. And again, I think it kind of ties to you. So it's almost like you're the reincarnate of Linus Pauling to a degree. Although physicians as a part of their training are taught that the dosage of a drug that is prescribed for the patient must be very carefully determined and controlled, they seem to have difficulty in remembering that the same principle applies to vitamins. Pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. Yeah. So what actually happened in the Linus Pauling studies, which is really interesting. so. He did two studies looking at high-dose IV vitamins in patients with cancer and reported good results. People thought, well, we don't believe it. So they designed a study to fail. So what did they do? They gave oral vitamin C. <laughs> so Cameron and et uh, al. Did, did a big randomized controlled trial with oral vitamin C, and obviously it failed because you expect it to fail. And then obviously... The bottom line was, see, we told you vitamin C doesn't work for, for cancer. But obviously they gave the drug in the wrong dose via the wrong route. So you're, you're implying that they designed that study, constructed that study for the purpose of failure. Of failure. Absolutely. Did you experience that firsthand? Or not, not firsthand, but maybe so we know that closely. This ha we know that this happens. I mean, probably one of the most outrageous cases was recently during COVID in which they used hydroxychloroquine in a toxic dose. So the normal dose of hydroxychloroquine is two to 400 milligrams, and it's used early. So in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was a study published in which they used a dose of 2,400 milligrams, which is a toxic dose of hydroxychloroquine. And they gave it to patients who were hospitalized, and it's a big surprise, big surprise, the risk of dying was higher in the hydroxychloroquine study. So that study, I think if any study was designed purposely to fail, but actually more than that, it was designed to kill people. And so as I understand, the um, investigators in Brazil are actually being charged with manslaughter because of their involvement in that study. So that's an example of how noxious, evil, Big Pharma designs studies to fail, but in this time it was at the expense of killing patients. And I think you've also talked about the timing of the vitamin C and sepsis is critical too, yes. and that if you delay and then construct a study for vitamin C, you're going to definitely see one outcome versus if you appropriately administer at the right time, you're going to see quite a different outcome. Yeah, it's sepsis is a time-dependent disease. I mean, it's pretty obvious, and it's not rocket science. When 
patients are septic, we know you give them antibiotics early yeah. because that's what you do. So in fact, one of the studies, the time delay was over 24 hours and some of the patients were actually patients who had been admitted to one hospital and transferred to another hospital. So the delay was inordinately long. That should have excluded patients from the study. But the study again was designed to fail. And so you're right, it's the dose that's important, the timing that's important, the way you give the vitamin C. So you, you have to look at the, the, uh, the whole approach. Yeah, you do. And it's not just, and I think what you've artfully said as well, it's, it's not just the timing, it's the dose, the frequency, but it's also using it in concert with other treatments. Yes. And you've showed that from your sepsis work into COVID and, and beyond, and you see that in the cancer too. Everybody's looking for that magic bullet. I was just going to say the magic bullet. There isn't a magic bullet. Oh, okay, thank you. It doesn't exist. I think what 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 there is is a symphony. It's a symphony of medications that work together in this orchestra of treatment that works together, and it's multiple things. It's exercise. It's stress reduction. It's sleep. Right. These all play in such an important part of the overall strategy to treating the patient. So that's part one with, again, I have to be honest, you know, when I would get up and speak about vitamin C early, I would just, you know, it was a little bit of a bromance, but then when I got to meet you and I got to know you more as a person, you know, I, I, I got to see the authentic person of who Dr. Paul Merrick is. And, you know, what you heard from him as it relates to his work in sepsis and vitamin C and COVID and vitamin C and his work as a critical care doctor, I would put up there second to none because of his focus, his purpose. It's blending the science and the art for the purpose of the patient. So what we're going to do next time, because we can sit here for hours and get the geek on, as you like to hear me say, we're going to talk about basically this next stage in his career, which is COVID and how he also was a leader there. He, again, instead of just you know compiling different treatments together, he compiled different physicians together to really work to save patients and really work to innovate. And so he did that through helping to form the FLCCC. And then after that, he's now doing the same thing in integrative oncology. And we're going to talk about his book, which I think is, is really a sentinel piece to change, I think, the conversation as it relates to integrative oncology. So we'll catch you on the flip side talking about the FLCCC, and then we'll wrap that up with integrative oncology with his new cancer care book. So I would encourage everybody that's following us to subscribe to the podcast Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear because we're going to be bringing further interviews with Dr. Paul Merrick, the innovator, the elevator, the pioneer. And we also reach out to other practitioners and doctors around the world to bring those who are actually pushing the tip of the spear in healthcare, in medicine, for cancer and beyond for everybody, patients, included, obviously. And so I encourage you to check out the podcast, but sign up for the podcast and share it for everybody that you would think would benefit from the podcast. Follow us on all social medias, of course. Uh, Instagram is Dr. Goodyear, but wherever you find and consume social media, 
I'm there. Also check out the website, drgoodyear.com, and of course, I'm medical director at brio-medical.com. We look forward to bringing you more information with Dr. Paul Merrick shortly. So Dr. Paul Merrick, where can, um, where can people that want to find more information about you and what you do, where can they find you? Yeah, so the, probably the best is to go to our website uh, at the FLCCC, and the website address is very simply flccc.net, flccc.net. And there you can find our protocols, our guidance, as well as a bunch of videos and educational material. Yeah, great educational material there, by the way. And that's one of the things that I really like what y'all are highlighting, including what was done in the most recent conference in the spring. So by the way, you, you may not know this. So, you know, we were offering um, CMEs. Okay. We got badly hammered because we were, they had certified misinformation. So, so you know how it goes. So it was through a CME company in Michigan, and so there were complaints to the Michigan Board of Medicine that this company was providing CMEs to people that were propagating misinformation. So they're not going to take away the CMEs that were already awarded, but we're not going to be able to, to um, offer, CMEs, offer CMEs going forward. It's completely messed up. And it's by the way, CME stands for Continuing Medical, medical education. education. I think they need to change that to CRME, Continuing Remedical Education. Yeah, or, or controlled. It's controlled. Yeah, controlled so education. So one of these, edu I mean, it's the same thing. It's the uh, same institutions that are captured that control what the narrative is. So what's next? I mean, what did they do to Galileo? Yeah. They burn him at the stake. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean. So, is, is that in our future? So, hopefully, uh, you know, that's not, not going to happen. You know, Ignac Semmelweis was put in a mental asylum and, you know, he died of sepsis. No, I didn't know. He needed vitamin. Well, he's, I'm sure they made him so, vitamin C deficient. So, he was at, least, at least my outcome is somewhat better than that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, we're not going to become kebabs. I, I assure you of that. And I don't think we're going to be put in the Salem Asylum to then get sepsis. So uh, more information coming at you soon. But check out flccc.net. There is a wide volume of information there um, for you to learn about all things related to COVID, but much, much, much more. So talk to you soon. Paul. Thank you, Nathan. Pleasure. Thanks. For more information just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness. Whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease, our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our future podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.